hashtag free the buffalo. This week, welcome back, cars. 102 Ave is open for all of you to use. Congratulations. Plus a slew of other news that we promise we'll cover this week. There was literally a provincial budget released. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 211. We've got a whole lot of news to cover this week, so we won't waste a single minute. On to the rapid fire. Emergency alert. Alberta emergency alert. Test alert. Emergency alert. The Alberta Emergency Management Agency has issued a province-wide test alert. alert. Emergency alert. Alberta Emergency Management Agency has issued a province-wide Chinatown Dining Week is behind us, but Edmontonians can look forward to Greater Mill Woods Dining Week from March 3rd to 12th, and Downtown Dining Week afterward from March 15th through the 26th. This will lead us into Northside Dining Week in April, followed by Lesser Regional Metropolitan Dining Week, which will overlap with the Premier's Platinum Jubilee Anniversary Sesquicentennial Dining Week, sure to be an absolute explosion of culinary taste, before culminating in the final event, the apex of dining, a 3am Taco Bell run. This week, the city of Edmonton was the first Canadian municipality to receive the Excellence in Pavement Preservation Award from the International Slurry Surfacing Association. Mayor Sowie wanted to be at the event, but he was unfortunately delayed after breaking his car's front axle on a pothole and had to spend the remainder of the day arguing with city lawyers after they denied all liability in the claim. That's an actual organization and an actual award. (laughs) (laughs) There was a part of me that was just like, the content of the joke is I know the preamble, but you know <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I read that. Okay. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you're choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a great fit. You can learn more at parkpower.ca. We have to start this week by a bit of a follow-up. Uh, Before we get into the follow-up, we have to issue a little bit of a correction on the 102 Ave story last week. Yeah, we reported that the final vote was 7 to 5, and that that made Councillor Joanne Wright the deciding, you know, swing vote, given that Councillor Michael Jans was away sick. Turns out the final vote was actually 8 to 4, and in addition to Councillor Wright, Mayor Sohi also switched his vote from the original one back in, in June. We messed up on that, I guess. We weren't the only ones. CBC, who we linked to in the show notes, also changed their story. I think what happened here, Troy, is that uh, the mayor actually voted the wrong way in the meeting and then recalled the vote and did it again. And for those of us who are watching you know, these meetings, they go on for a long time. You're watching on a live stream. You see the vote come up and you're like, that's the last thing I'm done. You turn it off. It's conceivable they just missed that uh, that next step. We certainly missed it too. And I don't know if anyone followed on my Twitter feed. By the time it was getting to the vote, I was more than done with the entire discussion. So, you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, we 
are very, very sorry. And next time we will blame Mayor Sohi for also voting improperly. <laughs> but we want to give a brief update on 102 Ave because you live right there. You walk it every day. Mac, how's it with cars? Uh, it's pretty much as you would expect. The road opened to vehicles almost right away. There were vehicles seen on there, I think, the day after the vote. But it really opened on Friday last week. They put these little orange barricades in the, in the lane on hundred and closer to 103rd Street. So there's kind of two-way traffic there. It's the only part of 102 Ave where the cars go both ways, which is in itself very confusing. You know, there hasn't been that many cars along 102 Ave this week as I've been walking by there. There's been a healthy number of them in the bike lane because it looks like a car lane. But I can't say that this has become like a major thoroughfare, which, you know, as you predicted, Troy, is is not surprising, given that this is really a less than ideal place for cars to go. Yeah, I've gotten a couple people reach out to me uh, since the episode was released saying, you know, I don't get why this is such a big deal. And I think you and I both mentioned it. This kind of isn't a huge deal. Yeah, would it be better to not have cars there? Yeah. Is this going to cause more danger for pedestrians and cyclists? Sure, absolutely. But to a muted effect, this is not a good car route and vehicle operators are not going to choose it because it is a poor route. The big problem with all of this was with the process and with council's will not being represented. And we covered all of that last week, so we won't relitigate those points. But I encourage everyone to think, okay, if this decision that didn't really matter was made in this manner, what about the decisions that really do matter, that have a huge outstanding effect? Do we want them to be made in this way, with this level of oversight and this level of influence from people who have a lot of developer money? And I think everyone can agree, probably not. So this is why we'll be watching the effects of this going forward. Yeah, and while it may not be so important in the grand scheme of things, it was important enough to the guy I saw on Monday morning who set himself up on the corner of 101st Street and 102nd Avenue, and he had a homemade sign that was actually really well made, like he must be an artist or something. But it basically said, welcome back cars. And he had a little thing in the corner that said, check your mufflers, because of course they increased the uh, the fines for noise and expanded it to all vehicles, not just motorcycles. And he was just out there waving his sign, waving at cars as they went by, you know, during the morning rush hour. I did not see a single car turn on to 102nd <laughs> Avenue or, you know, honk in solidarity or anything like that. We don't know. We unfortunately didn't get a picture of the sign because you were there with your kid and reasonably didn't want a confrontation. Yeah. My initial inclination is that the sign was ironic, but everything I do is steeped in eight layers of irony. So that might just be my worldview. Um, <laughs> either way, it's it's a weird thing to do on a Monday morning, uh, especially since it was fairly cold on Monday. Like he really had to bundle up to get out there. It really must have meant a lot to him. Uh, the final update I have on 102nd Avenue is this morning, we're recording this on Thursday, as I was walking by, right in front of the library, there was two, uh, I, I assume, Transit employees, they had the Transit uh, vests on, installing flex bollards on the bike lane in front of the library, which is a big improvement because, you know, without those, it really, really does, in a lot of cases, look like another lane. And so, you know, maybe, if you, you know, being charitable here, drivers who never come downtown wouldn't know any better, and it looks like a lane. So the flex bollards have started to go in. I don't know if they're all the way along. I'll have to follow up on that. We've got updates on other stuff that we haven't talked about for a while, but but regular listeners will remember back to episode 132. That was the episode we did about public art, specifically public art on the Walterdale Bridge. And this was Ken Lum's piece, The Buffalo and the Buffalo Fur Trader, which was put in a storage yard not to be installed on the Walterdale Bridge. And Mac, this week, the city released an update that... I don't know. In my time watching the city is a little bit 
unprecedented with how much crow the city ate. Yeah, it was really interesting. Like, so nobody knew about this artwork at first. We were asking the question at the time, whatever happened to the public art that was going to go on the Walterdale Bridge? And then we found it and were able to ask some questions about it. And the city had said that they decided not to install uh, Ken Lum's piece, The Buffalo and the Buffalo Fur Trader. These are two bronze sculptures that were, you know, meant to go on either side of the bridge because they thought that it could be seen to be celebrating colonialism and therefore make cause harm. And, you know, the artist himself said that's not really what it was intended to do, and it's really unfortunate. And so this week, the city, out of nowhere, I think it's fair to say, released this statement apologizing, essentially, saying that they did not intend to impugn Mr. Lum's uh, reputation and that they were working with him to select a new location to install the artwork. The out of nowhere piece? I don't know. I talked to a couple uh colleagues and friends who know some lawyers and almost unequivocally everyone agreed this seems like a response to the threat of a defamation lawsuit Mm. in that the city went to great lengths to say we do not mean to impugn Ken Lum's reputation in any way we know he's not a racist and we know he's not a colonialist and they, they really went through great lengths to disavow any criticism of other pieces of art from Ken Lum's work and they went further to say that the art will be installed at a place of Ken Lum's choosing. Uh, I assume not the Walterdale Bridge, though. Yeah, presumably not, because they talk in the news release about an alternate location. But interestingly, that Ken Lum will get to have some say into that. So I look forward to, to seeing his pieces installed somewhere. It'll be much better than where they've been sitting in the, you know, the lot for the last few years. I do think Ken Lum will really have to a very nice place. When he was designing the piece, and he spoke about this in a post, when we initially talked about this back about a year or two ago, and the choice of the river was to have the buffalo on one side staring warily across this threshold of the river at the fur trader who was sitting upon a heap of buffalo pelts. The piece doesn't work quite as well if the two are sitting beside each other um, at the entrance to some multi-use trail. So the location was kind of part of the art. I'll be interested to see what location they choose. Universally, the feedback we got on the previous episode was that the buffalo was absolutely gorgeous, and it's a shame that it has been hidden in the yard for so long. But there was a pretty big piece of news this week, and that was Budget 2023. The Lord government released their provincial budget for the upcoming year, which I don't know if you've heard is an election year. Shockingly, there was a lot of new money being thrown around in the budget uh, after a good three years of what I would call austerity budgets. And broadly, even though we're in Edmonton, Edmonton still got some stuff. Edmonton got some stuff, not as much as, say, the mayor would have liked, but definitely there's some investment. So schools overall across the board, across the province, you know, we'll see a boost in funding. And in Edmonton in particular, charter schools are getting some money, but also a new public school in Glenridding Heights is one of those things. We're getting some money for LRT, so $760 million over three years, a new Edmonton hospital to the tune of $634 million, and then lots of money for roads both in the city and around the region. So the money that uh, was expected to come for the Yellowhead Trail freeway conversion. There's also some money for Terwilliger Drive expansion, Highway 60 improvements near Atchison. They're going to get rid of that intersection that's been called you know, a death trap over in Parkland County on Range Road 20 and Highway 16A. So that's a good thing for the, for the region. You know, Other things around the region, expanding the Strathcona Hospital, some improvements to the roads connecting Edmonton and St. Albert. There's a bunch of money 
for Edmonton area things. And what I think is missing is the stuff that the mayor has been asking for for some time, of course, which is downtown revitalization, although they did recently give us a bit more money for that, renovations to Commonwealth Stadium, and then the big ones, affordable housing, shelters, addiction support, that kind of thing. I don't want to delve too deeply into the provincial politics of this all. I'm sure uh, the opposition NDP had a lot of things to say about either investing in the wrong spots or not investing enough. And I'm sure there was government rebuttals to that as well, touting that this is, you know, the biggest spending they've ever done. None of that is really germane to the topics here. And I think the politics of this municipally are really interesting because, like you said, the requests that Mayor Amarjeet Sohi made, uh, specifically around affordable housing and downtown recovery, those were not met. We've seen in the past several months, there has been a bit of a conflating of provincial and municipal politics, either with the provincial government stepping in, I'm thinking with Tyler Shandro demanding the public safety plan that Edmonton promptly delivered Mm -hmm. regarding Chinatown, or I'm thinking the task force that uh, Sarah Hamilton and Tim Cartmel became a part of without city council notice or authorization. So I thought it was really interesting that Sarah Hamilton, after not really tweeting for an entire month, came back and said, congratulations to Casey Madu for a hard-won fight to get a new school in Edgemont. Congratulating the only UCP uh, MLA (laughs) in the city of Edmonton. And, you know, as an order, of course, Don Iveson congratulated Donald Trump on winning an election. There is some (laughs) amount of politicians just saying the necessary thing. Yeah. But to come off radio silence after receiving a lot of criticism for kowtowing to provincial politicians in the UCP, for this to be Sarah Hamilton's first tweet back, I think we're going to see a more stark divide and a more stark alignment with provincial politicians, especially from our Ward Sipawinawak councillor. It is definitely a departure from even fairly recently as last year or, or maybe a few years before that, where we did see quite a bit of coherence on council, you know, talking about the need for funding for housing, for example, and the need for the province to come to the table. You know, even if they disagreed or you sort of mentally placed them on different sides of the political spectrum, that was a pretty consistent message that we'd hear from, you know, all of our city councillors. And that doesn't seem to be the case now. One other thing I wanted to mention, Troy, about the budget is this one came down actually or was announced before the budget, which is interesting and a little unusual, but $125 million for McEwen University. And so what they're going to do with that is construct a new building for the School of Business on 109th Street and 105th Avenue. I have to imagine this has been in the works for a while because they've been clearing that plot of land for quite some time now. It's going to be a seven-story building and could increase the number of students they've got by 7,500. And that was interesting to me because their goal by 2030 is to have 30,000 students, which is pretty big when you consider the whole U of A is at 40,000. While this is not the downtown revitalization dollars that our city council may have wanted or put at first priority, I do think McEwen University has been quite a boon in that area. I can think back, you know, five, 10 years ago when there was gravel parking lots aplenty adjacent the McEwen campus. Yeah. But now there's Allard Hall where 
I go see shows sometime and there's student life all active around it. There's those new big wide sidewalks. There's this great urban space that you can walk across to Tim Hortons or Wendy's at any time of the night and really experience that downtown Edmonton culture. All these buildings in McEwen University are very nice. They add that little bit of je ne sais quoi to the downtown. You know, Ice District has a lot of great looking buildings. McEwen has a lot of great looking buildings. There are some connections. I think reinvesting further in McEwen campus, you know, most big downtowns do have a campus and they don't look that different from McEwen. I like this investment. I'll say it. I like it. I think it could also be good for Columbia Avenue, right? 105th Avenue behind McEwen, where there's been, you know, a growing number of, uh, of businesses taking over some of those spaces. And, you know, to have a huge number of additional students in that area and a building that is, you know, right on that avenue and, and instead of on 104th, I think will also be a good thing for, you know, activity in that area and, and could lead to new things. So, for example, the glass building on uh, 107th Street and uh, 104th Avenue now has a new cafe in there called, appropriately, the Glass Cafe. Um, <laughs> you know, it hasn't been a very successful strip for coffee shops aside from Tim Hortons, but I'm hopeful that these guys will make it work. And the more students they get into there, the, the more likely that'll be the case. Well, that project is supposed to begin construction next year in 2024, although, like I said, it almost seems like they're getting underway now. And the building is expected to open in 2027. We won't have to wait quite that long to really understand everything that was in this budget, but we should just say it's really new. It just came out. It always takes some time for you know these, these giant provincial budgets to be parsed and analyzed and for everybody to really understand what all the, the announcements and commitments actually look like. So I'm sure we'll learn more about that and, and, and how it affects Edmonton in the days to come. One other interesting part of the budget was a new fiscal accountability plan that was introduced as part of it, which would require future provincial governments to table balanced budgets and limit spending increases. And I always laugh when things like this are included in budgets in the same way that Alberta has a fixed election legislation that doesn't actually fix the election on a particular date and any government <laughs> right. can just change it at will. But yeah. this would theoretically force future governments say like the NDP, to have financial stewardship and only table balanced budgets. Yes, assuming that that government decided it didn't just want to change the plan, which I see no reason they couldn't. Or actually, I think even in this plan, there's a lot of wiggle room because in, there's, a, there's always exceptions, right? So they could declare that there's an emergency and it would be fine for them to table a, an unbalanced budget. I'm sure there's many a journalist trawling through the budget documents uh, with a stiff tall beer on their desk trying to get through it. It's always a slog, especially after lockup. But if they so wanted to, they could drink that beer in a public park, at least in one of the designated areas of the public park, which are now voted to become permanent. This came up at committee this week. So the pilot that ran the year before and last year, which allowed alcohol to be consumed in parks, remember only at picnic sites, so designated locations. There was 18 parks from May to October 2022 that allowed this to happen. And the administration report said that there were no significant incidents. So that's a good sign over this whole, you know, pilot. The the thing that I remember most about it, Troy, and maybe listeners do as well, are those big giant signs that say, no drinking allowed over here. Like that's the most memorable takeaway for me about this pilot. But the administration basically said, the pilot's done, what do you want to do? And in a three to two vote, executive committee decided, 
we want this to be permanent. And so now we'll get a program that looks similar to what the pilot was last year. Last year, we had 18 parks and a couple of 125 sites or something like that along along there where you can drink alcohol. So that will become permanent uh, starting this year. Of course, the three to two makes it sound a lot closer than it was. The committee only had five members present. The two people who voted against were councillors Jennifer Rice and Karen Principe, who on the body of 13 are always the two voting no to most everything. During the pilot, administration conducted surveys and found that 80% of people surveyed supported this move to allow alcohol in parks and that bylaw officers, like you said, handed out zero tickets and only gave out three warnings in 2022 related to alcohol consumption. So broadly, all the fears about the sky falling because a couple people were enjoying some uh, wine with their friends in the park never materialized. This doesn't actually have to go to council next week with this committee vote of three to two. This is a done deal and administration has made this permanent. So huzzah, enjoy your summer. Best summer ever. While we're doing a lot of follow-ups, we have a follow-up about Ann Stevenson. Specifically, there were allegations by Singh, the former Edmonton police commissioner, who levied a whole slew of complaints against Ann Stevenson, namely that she intervened in the investigation of Duncan Kinney and that she was engaging in unethical conduct. And she has been cleared of all of these allegations by an independent investigation conducted by the police commission. This is one of the first uh, major things to come out of the police commission uh, with Eric Atman now as uh, as chair. And Councillor Stevenson was understandably happy with the result. She said, quote, I didn't think how former Commissioner Singh had characterized my actions as accurate, and I think that's been demonstrated through the investigation, end quote. So that's good news for Councillor Stevenson, who we've had on the show before to talk about you know, how complicated it is being a city councillor, a police commissioner, and, uh, and you know, a resident at the same time. And of course, this whole situation was quite weird. Uh, if you'll recall, we only discovered about this complaint because it was leaked to the media not long after it was sent to Amarjeet Sohi's, the mayor's office, asking him to remove Ann Stevenson from the police commission. Of course, Mayor Sohi does not have that power and responded as such. But it was a peculiar situation. We still do not know to what investigation Singh was referring or if there was any investigation at all. We don't know how Singh would have found out about the criminal investigation of Duncan Kinney related to vandalism, uh, if that was what he was referring to. And through all the follow-ups that I've seen uh, by the journal and other news orgs, there has been no comment from either Singh nor the police commission nor the Edmonton Police Service outlining exactly what happened, who knew what, or when. So unfortunately, I don't know that we're ever going to quite know what exactly happened here, but it was a baffling series of events. Also on the baffling radar is the Edmonton Police Service, who for the better part of the past two years has been insisting, we need more boots on the ground downtown. Our disorder problem downtown needs to be solved by a heavier police presence. And then last week, they decided... They're going to move some officers out of downtown because they have too many. (laughs) Yeah, this is fascinating. So they went to the police commission and said the downtown division, which doesn't fall, you know, in alignment with the downtown neighborhood that you might think of or that the city's uh, boundaries cover. It's a bit different. They're going to rezone that and they're going to create three new beats. And this is all intended to try and clear up some confusion that is resulting from this healthy streets operations center that brought more people into the area. So now they're going to have Cromdale slash Boyle Street. They're going to have Oliver 
and they're going to have Jasper West. And it said that these were chosen based on data and crime trends and that these these new zones have already been implemented. I got to say my biggest confusion is not with the introduction of resources by the Healthy Streets Operations Center. It's that the Healthy Streets Operations Center could have any effect on this because Mac, correct me if I'm wrong, it still doesn't exist, right? Well, there's no physical thing, but I mean, it's one of those things that if you say it enough times, I guess it's going to exist because it's always mentioned in all of these announcements about the sheriffs coming down and all of the other things that the police have been doing to try and, you know, boost their presence in the area. So maybe it exists in our hearts and minds. If wishing made it so, well, the police have certainly wished long and hard enough. So this confusion about you know, who's responsible for what and where. I don't actually know if this change is going to improve any of that, but there were a couple of things that potentially could be good about this. So one is that uh, they have said that they will uh, review this now every six months, essentially, and look at the effectiveness. So they'll look at increase or decrease in calls to service. I don't know if there was ever a time frame before this that these beats were being regularly reviewed upon. So to have a six-month thing sounds like progress to me. And then, you know, the report did say that with this statistical data, they think that it'll have a, quote, dramatic impact on further gaining public support and reducing crime and disorder. I also don't know if that's the case, but I do think that having some of these officers more evenly distributed would be good. So we'll see what the results of this are in the months ahead. You know, anecdotally, which is, of course, the best form of evidence, I have heard from people downtown and specifically in the city center mall, ever since we've really ramped up the level of patrols, the level of officers downtown, almost universally from people in the city center mall, I've heard that it was peculiar that there was no one in the mall, but they'd see crews of four to eight policemen patrolling the malls. And maybe they're sheriffs, maybe they're security guards, but, you know, uniformed enforcement officers. And they said it felt a little weird. And I sort of feel that too. I don't know if the police are quite hitting the mark that they're supposed to be hitting. In a lot of these conversations, we hear that having more boots on the ground, having a larger police presence makes people feel more safe. And we know about marginalized individuals and how the police generally doesn't make them feel safe. But even, you know, the people who at best say, I want more police presence, When they actually see huge number of police officers patrolling, especially in a non-populated area, it almost feels kind of militaristic, kind of like you're supposed to be unsafe because why would there be such an overstated presence unless you were unsafe? Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, while we're on the anecdotal, I'll share, you know, my experience. I've not seen a single sheriff who's supposed to be patrolling. And I don't think there's been any more police than I've seen on, you know, in in times past, except as you point out, inside the mall, which is really interesting. Also, because it almost feels like we put the police officers in the mall and then closed a whole bunch of the entrances to keep them safe inside there. You know, there's (laughs) the street, the the entrance on 101st Street that's completely closed. And in fact, you know, they've drywall over the whole area, but they've also closed, you know, the, the doors adjacent to the library. There's signs on there that say out of order for maintenance, and yet there's a padlock on the doors. So there's really only one door now to get into the mall from that area. So it is it is peculiar how that has all gone down. And we don't see huge numbers of police patrolling the streets downtown any differently than we did before. Now, I will say I mostly saw them in the summer 
You know, the officers who are out on bicycles are quite visible downtown when the weather is better. But in the winter, that's not usually the case. And, you know, anecdotally, haven't seen much of an increase there. So, I mean, that's boundaries. The other police thing that we were going to talk about last week and uh, and ran out of time on was this really interesting quote, uh, a statement position from uh, Chief Dale McPhee. He was speaking at a luncheon with the uh, CEO of the Building Owners and Managers Association, Boma Edmonton, with Lisa Baroldi. And Boma and across Canada has been doing some research about downtowns, and they think that safety is the number one threat facing the commercial real estate industry. So they've done this survey and they found that, you know, property owners and managers are having to spend a lot more money due to issues related to security. And so this is the context for which they bring McPhee to this luncheon to to talk about this issue. And he said that police are, quote, prepared to lead, end quote, efforts and, quote, try some different things end quote, to address this downtown crime and social disorder. And he went on to say that the tactics, these different things that they might try, are, quote, probably not going to be popular for some, end quote. That all sounds pretty ominous to me, Troy. I don't know if that's supposed to evoke feelings of safety in me, but it sounds like a threat. Yeah, I think it does in a lot of ways. And, you know, also a jurisdictional land grab. The police are prepared to lead efforts. I mean... Some listeners may argue they already are. I mean, the police chief is is not only uh, leading the charge here in Edmonton, but gets to be the one who speaks almost on our behalf at provincial news releases and, and things as well. And of course, Chief Dale McPhee has presence on the provincial task force, which has usurped some of the city council authority in this regard. Yeah, uh, but to try some different things that are not going to be popular, what does that mean? I think it means he's willing to do anything to protect the sport checks of the world. <laughs> I thought you might say that. And so that's not a good thing for the vulnerable people who you know, have nowhere else to go and uh, and are trying to stay warm or use, you know, whatever locations they can find downtown. Uh, I'm concerned by by those remarks from the chief. And of course, this is the Building Owners and Managers Association saying that, you know, they feel there are security concerns that they need to pay to address. But as we heard on 102 Ave, building managers, property developers spoke at council and seemed to insist that vehicle traffic, eyes on the street from people in cars, would keep people safe. To what extent, I wonder, if you're showing up at this association meeting where all of these people have agreed on something that we know through science isn't actually the solution to the problem, and you represent the largest funded organization in the city of Edmonton with basically fully autonomous budgeting and no accountability to city council, I think it's pretty stark to say, to what extent have we lost the democratic thread here that... Uh, Developers and building owners have a direct line to someone who controls a huge proportion of Edmonton's money and is willing to try some new unpopular things. Ah, Mac, I don't know where the accountability is supposed to fit in in that scenario. Yeah, I don't question for a moment that the the building operators and managers have seen increased expenses. I mean, that's, that's pretty plain to see. There's always people having to clean up excrement or needles or whatever the rest of it is around the properties. There's windows that have had to be replaced. You know, there's real tangible costs, but I'm not sure how we get from those kinds of things to the police chief will save us. And as you say, you know, what's the accountability for that? What if he, if he tries something new, is the police commission going to hold him accountable? Not historically. They're supposed to. Yeah. City council, however, is trying something new or 
at least trying something bigger to combat vehicle noise. Uh, city Council unanimously voted to amend the city's traffic bylaw, increasing the fine for excessive vehicle noise to $1,000, which will then double for subsequent offenses, and also extending this to all types of vehicles. Previously, the bylaw only applied to motorcycles. Yeah, and this is all kinds of noise. So it includes honking, it includes loud music, it includes... You know, those cars that just rev the engine and make it echo off all the buildings. So this is, on the face of it, a really good thing. I'm really glad that this was unanimous. I think this is the right way to go. It's been a huge problem, especially in central neighborhoods for, you know, for residents. Unfortunately, I'm not sure what kind of a difference this is going to make, because while the fine is great, uh, that only really matters if there's enforcement. And of course, historically, you and I both know enforcement has been exceptionally lacking on this. While we're on an episode of anecdotes, I'd like to share a brief anecdote as it relates to noise, because this is a thing that Edmontonians like to think that, you know, we have laws and they protect us from nuisance. But a couple of weeks ago, there was a dog out in the cold. My neighbors had left him outside and had gone out for the night. And, you know, it was minus 20. I was concerned for the dog and he was just howling. He was barking constantly. It was very, very loud. So I called 311. 311 closes at 7 p.m. And you can't register a noise complaint. If you call the police non-emergency line, they'll say that they don't respond to animal complaints. That's animal control. Closes at 6 p.m. Or a noise complaint. That's bylaw. Closes at 7 p.m. The noise bylaw kicks in at 10 p.m., Mac. Yes. As the current bylaw is written... If you called before 10 p.m., the noise bylaw doesn't have any effect. People can make noise during the day. That is how the bylaw is written. If you call during the times when the bylaw does apply to register a complaint, you cannot because they are closed and no one is there to take your complaint. And they can respond in the morning when the bylaw no longer has any effect. So, Mac, how exactly does that help enforce noise bylaw? I have to think if that is the way we deal with any noise in the city... I don't have a lot of optimism that vehicle noise is going to get effectively dealt with here. No, especially for, you know, in theory, in that case, you know, you could register the complaint the next day. Maybe it prevents, you know, future instances. But in the case of vehicles, which are by definition in motion, <laughs> it's really hard to do any kind of enforcement after the fact. And it's also, you know, as you're pointing out, our system is pretty much complaint based, not proactive. And so that's also another reason why I'm not optimistic about, you know, these new excessive vehicle noise uh, fines actually being implemented all that often. We're not too optimistic about vehicle noise, but I personally am optimistic about the impact that passionate people who are working to make Edmonton a strong, vibrant city to live in can have. And we hear about those stories on the Well Endowed podcast by the Edmonton Community Foundation. Uh, the Edmonton Community Foundation helps people create endowment funds and the podcast tells the stories of how those endowments intersect with the community. You can subscribe at thewellendowedpodcast.com. Mac, after that seamless ad, I think we're done for the day. We covered a whole slew of topics and maybe, just maybe, we'll do it again next week. Here's hoping. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we are Speaking, Speaking Municipally. Municipal.